Book Five, Chapter Thirty Four of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Five, Chapter Thirty Four. Meanwhile, as if to complete the circle of pain with which poor Catherine's life was compassed, it began to be plain to her that, in spite of the hard and mocking tone Rose generally adopted with regard to him, Edward Langham was constantly at the house in Lerwick Gardens and that it was impossible he should be there so much, unless, in some way or other, Rose encouraged it. The idea of such a marriage, nay, of such a friendship, was naturally as repugnant as ever to her. It had been one of the bitterest moments of a bitter time, when, at their first meeting after the crisis in her life, Langham, conscious of a sudden movement of pity for a woman he disliked, had pressed the hand she held out to him in a way which clearly showed her what was in his mind, and had then passed on to chat and smoke with Robert in the study, leaving her behind to realise the gulf that lay between the present and that visit of his to Muirwell, when Robert and she had felt in unison towards him, his opinions and his conduct to Rose, as towards everything else of importance in their life. Now, it seemed to her, Robert must necessarily look at the matter differently, and she could not make up her mind to talk to him about it. In reality, his objections had never had the same basis as hers, and he would have given her as strong a support as ever if she had asked for it. But she held her peace, and he, absorbed in other things, took no notice. Besides, he knew Langham too well. He had never been able to take Catherine's alarms seriously. An attentive onlooker, however, would have admitted that this time, at any rate, they had their justification. Why Langham was so much in the Laban's drawing-room during these winter months was a question that several people asked, himself not least. He had not only pretended to forget Rose Leyburn during the eighteen months which had passed since their first acquaintance at Muirwell, he had, for all practical purposes, forgotten her. It is only a small proportion of men and women who are capable of passion on the great scale at all, and certainly, as we have tried to show, Langham was not among them. He had a passing moment of excitement at Muirwell, soon put down, and followed by a week of extremely pleasant sensations which, like most of his pleasures, had ended in reaction and self-abhorrence. He had left Muirwell remorseful, melancholy, and ill at ease, but conscious, certainly, of a great relief that he and Rose Laban were not likely to meet again for long. Then his settlement in London had absorbed him, as all such matters absorb men who have become the slaves of their own solitary habits, and in the joy of his new freedom and the fresh zest for learning it had aroused in him, the beautiful, unmanageable child who had disturbed his peace at Muirwell was not likely to be more, but less, remembered. When he stumbled across her unexpectedly in the National Gallery, his determining impulse had been merely one of flight. However, as he had written to Robert towards the beginning of his London residence, there was no doubt that his migration had made him, for the time, much more human, observant, and accessible. Oxford had become to him an oppression and a nightmare, and as soon as he had turned his back on it, his mental lungs seemed once more to fill with air. He took his modest part in the life of the capital, happy in the obscurity afforded him by the crowd, rejoicing in the thought that his life and his affairs were once more his own, and the academical yoke had been slipped for ever. It was in this mood of greater cheerfulness and energy that his fresh sight of Rose found him. For the moment he was perhaps more susceptible than he ever could have been before to her young perfections, her beauty, her brilliancy, her provoking, stimulating ways. Certainly, from that first afternoon onwards, he became more and more restless to watch her, to be near her, 
to see what she made of herself and her gifts. In general, though it was certainly owing to her that he came so much, she took small notice of him. He regarded, or chose to regard himself, as a mere item, something systematically overlooked and forgotten in the bustle of her days and nights. He saw that she thought badly of him, that the friendship he might have had was now proudly refused him, that their first week together had left a deep impression of resentment and hostility in her mind. And all the same he came, and she asked him. And sometimes, after an hour when she had been more difficult or more satirical than usual, ending notwithstanding with a little change of tone, a careless, "'You will find us next Wednesday, as usual. So-and-so is coming to play.' Langham would walk home in a state of feeling he did not care to analyse, but which certainly quickened the pace of life a good deal. She would not let him try his luck at friendship again, but in the strangest, slightest ways did she not make him suspect every now and then that he was, in some sort, important to her, that he sometimes preoccupied her against her will, that her will, indeed, sometimes escaped her, and failed to control her manner to him. It was not only his relations to the beauty, however, his interest in her career, or his perpetual consciousness of Mrs. Ellesmere's cold dislike and disapproval of his presence in her mother's drawing-room, that accounted for Langham's heightened mental temperature this winter. The existence and the proceedings of Mr. Hugh Flaxman had a very considerable share in it. "'Tell me about Mr. Langham,' said Mr. Flaxman once to Agnes Laban, in the early days of his acquaintance with the family. "'Is he an old friend?' "'Of Robert's,' replied Agnes, her cheerful, impenetrable look fixed upon the speaker. "'My sister met him once for a week in the country of the Ellesmeres. My mother and I have been only just introduced to him.' Hugh Flaxman pondered the information a little. "'Does he strike you as well, what shall we say, unusual?' His smile struck one out of her. "'Even Robert might admit that,' she said demurely. "'Is Ellesmere so attached to him? I own I was provoked just now by his tone about Ellesmere. I was remarking on the evident physical and mental strain your brother-in-law had gone through, and he said with a nonchalance I cannot convey, "'Yes, it is astonishing Ellesmere should have ventured it. I confess I often wonder whether it was worth while.' "'Why?' said I, perhaps a little hotly. "'Well, he didn't know, wouldn't say.' But I gather that, according to him, Ellesmere is still swathed in such an unconscionable amount of religion that the few rags and patches he has got rid of are hardly worth the discomfort of the change. It seemed to me the tone of the very cool spectator, rather than the friend. However, does your sister like him? I don't know, said Agnes, looking her questioner full in the face. Hugh Flaxman's fair complexion flushed a little. He got up to go. "'He is one of the most extraordinarily handsome persons I ever met,' he remarked, as he buttoned up his coat. "'Don't you think so?' "'Yes,' said Agnes dubiously, "'if he didn't stoop, and if he didn't in general look half asleep.' Hugh Flaxman departed, more puzzled than ever, as to the reason for the constant attendance of this uncomfortable antisocial person at the Laban's house. Being himself a man of very subtle and fastidious tastes, he could imagine that so original a suitor, with such eyes, such an intellectual reputation so well sustained by scantiness of speech and the most picturesque capacity for silence, might have attractions for a romantic and wilful girl. But where were the signs of it? Rose rarely talked to him, and was always ready to make him the target of a sub-acid raillery. Agnes was clearly indifferent to him, and Mrs. Lowburn equally clearly afraid of him. 
Mrs. Ellesmere, too, seemed to dislike him, and yet there he was, week after week. Flaxman could not make it out. Then he tried to explore the man himself. He started various topics with him—university reform, politics, music. In vain. In his most characteristic Oxford days, Langham had never assumed a more wholesale ignorance of all subjects in heaven and earth, and never stuck more pertinaciously to the flattest forms of commonplace. Flaxman walked away at last, boiling over. The man of parts masquerading as the fool is perhaps at least as exasperating as the fool playing at wisdom. However, he was not the only person irritated. After one of these fragments of conversation, Langham also walked rapidly home in a state of most irrational petulance, his hands thrust with energy deep into the pockets of his overcoat. "'No, my successful aristocrat, you shall not have everything your own way so easily with me or with her. You may break me, but you shall not play upon me. And as for her, I'll see it out. I will see it out.' And he stiffened himself as he walked, feeling life electric all about him, and a strange new force tingling in every vein. Meanwhile, however, Mr. Flaxman was certainly having a good deal of his own way. Since the moment when his aunt, Lady Charlotte, had introduced him to Miss Laban, watching him the while with a half-smile which soon broadened into one of sly triumph, Hugh Flaxman had persuaded himself that country houses are intolerable even in the shooting season, and that London is the only place of residence during the winter for the man who aspires to govern his life on principles of reason. Through his influence and that of his aunt, Rose and Agnes, Mrs. Laban never went out, were being carried into all the high life that London can supply in November and January. Wealthy, high-born, and popular, he was gradually devoting his advantages in the freest way to Rose's service. He was an excellent musical amateur, and he was always proud to play with her. He had a fine country house, and the little rooms on Campden Hill were almost always filled with flowers from his gardens. He had a famous musical library, and its treasures were lavished on the girl violinist. He had a singularly wide circle of friends, and with his whimsical energy he was soon inclined to make kindness to the two sisters the one test of a friend's good will. He was clearly touched by Rose, and what was to prevent his making an impression on her? To her sex he had always been singularly attractive. Like his sister, he had all sorts of bright impulses and audacities flashing and darting about him. He had a certain hauteur with men, and could play the aristocrat when he pleased, for all his philosophical radicalism. But with women he was the most delightful mixture of deference and high spirits. He loved the grace of them, the daintiness of their dress, the softness of their voices. He would have done anything to please them, anything to save them pain. At twenty-five, when he was still citizen flaxman to his college friends, and in the first fervours of a poetic defiance of prejudice and convention, he had married a gamekeeper's pretty daughter. She had died with her child—died, almost poor thing, of happiness and excitement, of the over-greatness of heaven's boon to her. Flaxman had adored her, and death had tenderly embalmed a sentiment to which life might possibly have been less kind. Since then he had lived in music, letters, and society, refusing, out of a certain fastidiousness, to enter politics, but welcomed and considered wherever he went, tall, good-looking, distinguished, one of the most agreeable and courted of men, and perhaps the richest parti in London. Still, in spite of it all, Langham held his ground. Langham would see it out. 
and indeed Flaxman's footing with the beauty was by no means clear, least of all to himself. She evidently liked him, but she bantered him a good deal. She would not be the least subdued or dazzled by his birth and wealth, or by those of his friends. And if she allowed him to provide her with pleasures, she would hardly ever take his advice, or knowingly consult his tastes. Meanwhile, she tormented them both a good deal by the artistic acquaintance she gathered about her. Mrs. Pearson's world, as we have said, contained a good many dubious odds and ends, and she had handed them all over to Rose. The Laban's growing intimacy with Mr. Flaxman and his circle, and through them with the finer types of the artistic life, would naturally, and by degrees, have carried them away somewhat from this earlier circle, if Rose had allowed it. But she clung persistently to its most unpromising specimens, partly out of a natural generosity of feeling, but partly also for the sake of that opposition her soul loved, her poor prickly soul, full under all her gaiety and indifference of the most desperate doubt and soreness, opposition to Catherine, opposition to Mr. Flaxman, but above all, opposition to Langham. Flaxman could often avenge himself on her, or rather on the more obnoxious members of her following, by dint of a faculty for light and stinging repartee, which would send her, flushed and biting her lip, to have her laugh out in private. But Langham, for a long time, was defenceless. Many of her friends, in his opinion, were simply pathological curiosities. Their vanity was so frenzied, their sensibilities so morbidly developed. He felt a doctor's interest in them, coupled with more than a doctor's scepticism as to all they had to say about themselves. But Rose would invite them, would assume a quasi-intimacy with them, and Langham, as well as everybody else, had to put up with it. Even the trodden worm, however, and there came a time when the concentration of a good many different lines of feeling in Langham's mind betrayed himself at last in a sharp and sudden openness. It began to seem to him that she was specially bent often on tormenting him by these caprices of hers, and he vowed to himself finally, with an outburst of irritation due in reality to a hundred causes, that he would assert himself that he would make an effort at any rate to save her from her own follies. One afternoon, at a crowded musical party to which he had come much against his will, and only in obedience to a compulsion he dared not analyse, she asked him in passing if he would kindly find Mr. McFadden, a bass-singer, whose name stood next on the programme, and who was not to be seen in the drawing-room. Langham searched the dining-room and the hall, and at last found Mr. McFadden, a fair, flabby, unwholesome youth, in the little study or cloak-room, in a state of collapse, flanked by whisky and water, and attended by two frightened maids, who handed over their charge to Langham, and fled. Then it appeared that the great man had been offended by a change in the programme which hurt his vanity, had withdrawn from the drawing-room on the brink of hysterics, had called for spirits, which had been provided for him with great difficulty by Mrs. Laban's maids, and was there drinking himself into a state of rage and rampant dignity, which would soon have shown itself in a melodramatic return to the drawing-room, and a public refusal to sing at all in a house where art had been outraged in his person. Some of the old disciplinary instincts of the Oxford tutor awoke in Langham at the sight of the creature, and with a prompt sternness which amazed himself, and nearly set McFadden whimpering, he got rid of the man, shut the hall door on him, and went back to the drawing-room. "'Well,' said Rose in anxiety, coming up to him, "'I have sent him away,' 
he said briefly, an eye of unusual quickness and brightness looking down upon her. He was in no condition to sing. He chose to be offended, apparently, because he was put out of his turn, and has been giving the servants trouble. Rose flushed deeply, and drew herself up with a look half trouble, half defiant, at Langham. "'I trust you will not ask him again,' he said, with the same decision. "'And if I might say so, there are one or two people still here whom I should like to see you exclude at the same time.' They had withdrawn into the bow window out of earshot for the rest of the room. Langham's look turned significantly towards a group near the piano. It contained one or two men whom he regarded as belonging to a low type, men who, if it suited their purpose, would be quite ready to tell or invent malicious stories of the girl they were now flattering, and whose standards and instincts represented a coarser world than Rose in reality knew anything about. Her eyes followed his. "'I know,' she said petulantly, "'that you dislike artists. They're not your world. They are mine.' "'I dislike artists. What nonsense, too. To me, personally, these men's ways don't matter in the least. They go their road, and I go mine. But I deeply resent any danger of discomfort and annoyance to you.' He still stood, frowning, a glow of indignant energy showing itself in his attitude, his glance. She could not know that he was at that moment vividly realising the drunken scene that might have taken place in her presence if he had not succeeded in getting that man safely out of the house. But she felt that he was angry, and mostly angry with her, and there was something so piquant and unexpected in his anger. "'I am afraid,' she said, with a queer, sudden submissiveness, "'you've been going through something very disagreeable. I'm very sorry. Is it my fault?' she added, with a whimsical flash of eye, half fun, half serious. He could hardly believe his ears. "'Yes, it is your fault, I think,' he answered her, amazed at his own boldness. "'Not that I was annoyed. Heavens, what does that matter? But that you and your mother and sister were very near an unpleasant scene. You will not take advice, Miss Laban. You will take your own way, in spite of what anyone else can say or hint to you. And some day you will expose yourself to annoyance when there is no one near to protect you.' "'Well, if so, it won't be for want of a mentor,' she said, dropping him a mock curtsy. But her lip trembled under its smile, and her tone had not lost its gentleness. At this moment Mr. Flaxman, who gradually established himself as the joint leader of these musical afternoons, came forward to summon Rose to a quartet. He looked from one to the other, a little surprise penetrating through his suavity of manner. "'Am I interrupting you?' "'Not at all,' said Rose. Then turning back to Langham, she said in a hurried whisper, don't say anything about the wretched man. It would make Mamma nervous. He shan't come here again." Mr. Flaxman waited till the whisper was over, and then led her off, with a change of manner which she immediately perceived, and which lasted for the rest of the evening. Langham went home, and sat brooding over the fire. Her voice had not been so kind, her look so womanly, for months. Had she been reading Shirley, and would she have liked him to play Louis Mor? He went into a fit of silent, convulsive laughter as the idea occurred to him. Some secret instinct made him keep away from her for a time. At last, one Friday afternoon, as he emerged from the museum, where he had been collating the manuscript of some obscure Alexandrian, the old craving returned with added strength, and he turned involuntarily westward. An acquaintance of his, recently made in the course of work at the museum, 
a young Russian professor, ran after him and walked with him. Presently they passed a poster on the wall, which contained, in enormous letters, the announcement of Madame de Forêt's approaching visit to London, a list of plays, and the dates of performances. The young Russian suddenly stopped and stood pointing at the advertisement with shaking, derisive finger, his eyes aflame, the whole man quivering with what looked like antagonism and hate. Then he broke into a fierce flood of French. Langham listened till they passed Piccadilly, passed the park, until the young savant turned southwards towards his Brompton lodgings. Then Langham slowly climbed Camden Hill, meditating. His thoughts were an odd mixture of the things he had just heard, and of a scene at Muirwall long ago, when a girl had denounced him for calumny. At the door of Lerwick Gardens he was informed that Mrs. Laban was upstairs with an attack of bronchitis, but the servant thought the young ladies were at home. Would he come in? He stood irresolute a moment, then went in on a pretext of inquiry. The maid threw open the drawing-room door, and there was Rose sitting well into the fire, for it was a raw February afternoon, with a book. She received him with all her old hard brightness. He was indeed instantly sorry that he had made his way in. Tyrant! Was she displeased because he had slipped his chain for rather longer than usual? However, he sat down, delivered his book, and they talked first about her mother's illness. They had been anxious, she said, but the doctor, who had just taken his departure, had now completely reassured them. "'Then you would be able, probably, after all, to put in an appearance at Lady Charlotte's this evening?' he asked her. The omnivorous Lady Charlotte, of course, had made acquaintance with him in the Laban's drawing-room, as she did with everybody who crossed her path, and three days before he had received a card from her for this evening. "'Oh, yes, but I've had to miss a rehearsal this afternoon. That concert at Searle House is becoming a great nuisance.' "'It will be a brilliant affair, I suppose. Princes on one side of you, and Albani on the other. I see they have given you the most conspicuous part as violinist. "'Yes,' she said, with a little satirical tightening of the lip. "'Yes, I suppose I ought to be much flattered.' "'Of course,' he said, smiling, but embarrassed. "'To many people you must be at this moment one of the most enviable persons in the world. A delightful art, and every opportunity to make it tell.' There was a pause. She looked into the fire. "'I don't know whether it is a delightful art,' she said presently, stifling a little yawn. I believe I'm getting very tired of London. Sometimes I think I shouldn't be very sorry to find myself suddenly spirited back to Burwood." Langham gave vent to some incredulous interjection. He'd apparently surprised her in a fit of ennui, which was rare with her. "'Oh, no, not yet,' she said suddenly, with a return of animation. "'Madame de Forêt comes next week, and I am to see her.' She drew herself up, and turned a beaming face upon him. Was there a shaft of mischief in her eye? could not tell. The firelight was perplexing. "'You are to see her?' he said slowly. "'Is she coming here?' "'I hope so. Mrs. Pearson is to bring her. I want Mamma to have the amusement of seeing her. My artistic friends are a kind of tonic to her. They excite her so much. She regards them as a sort of show, much as you do, in fact, only in a more charitable fashion.' But he took no notice of what she was saying. "'Madame de Forêt is coming here?' he sharply repeated, bending forward, a curious accent in his tone. "'Yes,' she replied, with apparent surprise. Then, with a careless smile, 
Oh, I remember when we were at Muirwell you were exercised that we should know her. Well, Mr. Langham, I told you then that you were only echoing unworthy gossip. I'm in the same mind still. I have seen her, and you haven't. To me she is the greatest actress in the world, and an ill-used woman to boot. Her tone had warmed with every sentence. It struck him that she had willfully brought up the topic, that it gave her pleasure to quarrel with him. He put down his hat deliberately, got up, and stood with his back to the fire. She looked up at him curiously, but the dark, regular face was almost hidden from her. "'It is strange,' he said slowly, "'very strange, that you should have told me at this moment. Miss Laban, a great deal of the truth about Madame de Foray I could neither tell nor could you hear. There are charges against her proved in open court, again and again, which I could not even mention in your presence. But one thing I can speak of. Do you know the story of the sister at St. Petersburg?' "'I know no stories against Madame de Foray,' said Rose loftily, her quickened breath responding to the energy of his tone. "'I have always chosen not to know them.' "'The newspapers were full of this particular story just before Christmas. I should have thought it must have reached you.' "'I did not see it,' she replied stiffly. "'And I cannot see what good purpose is to be served by your repeating it to me, Mr. Langham.' Langham could have smiled at her petulance if he had not for once been determined and in earnest. "'You will let me tell it, I hope,' he said quietly. "'I will tell it so that it shall not offend your ears. "'As it happens, I myself thought it incredible at the time. "'But by an odd coincidence it has just this afternoon been repeated to me "'by a man who was an eye-witness of part of it.' "'Rose was silent. "'Her attitude was hauteur itself, but she made no further active opposition. Three months ago,' he began, speaking with some difficulty, but still with a suppressed force of feeling which amazed his hearer. Madame de Foray was acting in St. Petersburg. She had with her a large company, and amongst them her own young sister, Elise Romy, a girl of eighteen. This girl had been always kept away from Madame de Foray by her parents, who had never been sufficiently consoled by their eldest daughter's artistic success for the infamy of her life. Rose started indignantly. Langham gave her no time to speak. Elise Romy, however, had developed a passion for the stage. Her parents were respectable, and you know young girls in France are brought up strictly. She knew next to nothing of her sister's escapades, but she knew that she was held to be the greatest actress in Europe. The photographs in the shops told her that she was beautiful. She conceived a romantic passion for the woman whom she had last seen when she was a child of five, and actuated partly by this hungry affection, Partly by her own longing wish to become an actress, she escaped from home and joined Madame de Foray in the south of France. Madame de Foray seems at first to have been pleased to have her. The girl's adoration pleased her vanity. Her presence with her gave her new opportunities of posing. I believe, and Langan gave a little dry laugh, <laughs> they were photographed together at Marseille with their arms round each other's necks, and the photograph had an immense success. However, on the way to St. Petersburg, difficulties arose. Elise was pretty in a blonde, childish way, and she caught the attention of the jeune premier of the company, a man—the speaker became somewhat embarrassed—whom Madame de Foray seems to have regarded as her particular property. There were scenes at different turns on the journey. Elise became frightened, wanted to go home, but the elder sister, having begun tormenting her, seemed to have determined to keep her hold on her as a cat keeps and tortures a mouse. 
mainly for the sake of annoying the man of whom she was jealous. They arrived at St. Petersburg in the depth of winter. The girl was worn out with travelling, unhappy and ill. One night in Madame de Forêt's apartments there was a supper-party, and after it a horrible quarrel. No one exactly knows what happened. But towards twelve o'clock that night Madame de Forêt turned her young sister in evening dress, a light shawl round her, out into the snowy streets of St. Petersburg, barred the door behind her, and, revolver in hand, dared the wretched man who had caused the fracas to follow her. Rose sat immovable. She had grown pale, but the firelight was not revealing. Langham turned away from her towards the blaze, holding out his hands to it mechanically. "'The poor child,' he said after a pause, in a lower voice, "'wandered about for some hours. It was a frightful night.' The great capital was quite strange to her. She was insulted, fled this way and that, grew benumbed with cold and terror, and was found unconscious in the early morning under the archway of a house some two miles from her sister's lodgings. There was a dead silence. Then Rose drew a long, quivering breath. "'I do not believe it,' she said passionately. "'I cannot believe it.' "'It was amply proved at the time,' said Langham dryly. "'though, of course, Madame de Forêt tried to put her own colour on it. "'But I told you I had private information. "'On one of the floors of the house where Elise Romy was picked up "'lived a young university professor. "'He was editing an important Greek text, "'and has lately had business at the museum. "'I made friends with him there. "'He walked home with me this afternoon, "'saw the announcement of Madame de Forêt's coming, "'and poured out the story. "'He and his wife nursed the unfortunate girl with a devotion— she lived just a week, and died of inflammation of the lungs. I never in my life heard anything so pitiful as his description of her delirium, her terror, her appeals, her shivering misery of cold. There was a pause. "'She is not a woman,' he said presently, between his teeth. "'She is a wild beast.' Still there was silence, and still he held out his hand to the flame which Rose, too, was staring at. At last he turned round. "'I've told you a shocking story,' he said hurriedly. "'Perhaps I ought not to have done it. But as you sat there talking so lightly, so gaily, it suddenly became to me utterly intolerable that that woman should ever sit here in this room, talk to you, call you by your name, laugh with you, touch your hand. Not even your wilfulness shall carry you so far. You shall not do it.' He hardly knew what he said. He was driven on by a passionate sense of physical repulsion to the notion of any contact between her pure, fair youth and something malodorous and corrupt. And there was, besides, a wild, unique excitement in claiming for once to stay, to control her. Rose lifted her head slowly. The fire was bright. He saw the tears in her eyes, tears of intolerable pity for another girl's awful story. But through the tears something gleamed, a kind of exultation, the exultation which the magician feels when he has called spirits from the vasty deep, and after long doubt and difficult invocation they rise at last before his eyes. "'I will never see her again,' she said in a low, wavering voice, but she too was hardly conscious of her own words. Their looks were on each other, the ruddy, capricious light touching her glowing her cheeks, her straight-lined grace, her white hand. Suddenly, from the gulf of another's misery into which they had both been looking, there had sprung up, by the strange contrariety of home and things, a heat, 
and intoxication of feeling, wrapping them round, blotting out the rest of the world from them like a golden mist. Be always thus, her parted lips, her liquid eyes were saying to him. His breath seemed to fail him. He was lost in bewilderment. There were sounds outside, Catherine's voice. He roused himself with a supreme effort. "'Tonight, uh, at Lady Charlotte's?' "'Tonight,' she said, and held out her hand. A sudden madness seized him. He stooped. His lips touched it. It was hastily drawn away, and the door opened. End of Book 5, Chapter 34